Welcome back to another episode of In the Trenches with the Hernandez and Dorger Law Firm, the Equalizing Justice Team. Today's topic is discovery, and I am joined with attorneys Christine Hernandez, Sarah Dorger, Grady Edmondson, and Megan Allgood. What is discovery as it pertains to any litigation? And then we'll get into the specifics of each individual attorney's primary area of litigation. So Sarah, do you want to go ahead and start? Well, discovery is is really a generic term for finding out what the other side knows. In the context of a civil case, the way a civil case starts was, is with the filing of a complaint. And in the complaint, there are claims made by the per- person seeking recovery. And those claims in a civil case can be related to car accidents, can be related to injury claims, can be related to contract disputes, can be related to a number of other tort claims, tort being uh, civil wrongs. There are a number of various civil claims that parties make. And when a civil suit is start started, this complaint gets filed. The person that is sued becomes the defendant and they have the right to assert in their defense defenses, denials of liability, denying that the person is entitled to recover the claims that they are seeking. And once that process is over, discovery generally starts. Discovery is the meat and potatoes aspect of the case where parties start to find out from each other what they know. A defendant being sued in a civil case, they want to know what the plaintiff has to support the claims that he or she makes or that the company makes. They're going to ask for documents. They're going to ask for written information, written um, questions under oath, which is referred to as interrogatories. They may ask for a request to inspect. They may ask for a permission to go on a piece of property if a piece of property is at dispute. All of those are what we call written discovery tools that parties use to find out information from each other. That Those um, general concepts apply in the criminal world as well, which Chris or Megan can touch on from their personal experience on dealing with criminal discovery on a criminal case. But in the civil world, when that complaint gets filed, the parties start to learn what they know. And ultimately, the goal is to get the case prepared so that the fact finder can hear it, whether it's a jury that ultimately will hear the claims or whether the court and a bench trial will ultimately hear the claims and decide you know, who uh, recovers or doesn't recover. You also can have a civil tool, civil discovery use of um, using a deposition. A deposition is testimony that is sworn to under oath. It's not done in court but it's like you are in court. You, it's like you are um, being questioned in front of the judge or the jury and you have to tell the truth. You're under oath just as if you were testifying live at trial. Depositions happen a lot in civil cases. They're very normal. The lawyers will schedule those. The parties will be deposed. A court reporter is there to take down what questions are being asked, what answers are being given by the person being deposed, Witnesses, separate and apart from parties, people who are making claims or who've been sued, you have witnesses who may have information about what they know, what they saw, what they observed. Lawyers will go and take their depositions. 
you may enter into a phase once all the fact discovery is done, when you've asked for documents and you've deposed everybody that you think has relevant information, you can move into expert discovery, which is, depending on the case, a party may designate an expert for that person to offer opinions about claims that the plaintiff makes, claims that the defendant or defendant defenses that the defendant may raise, those that's all subject to its own nuanced procedures. You get into the rules of evidence and whether an expert's opinion is reliable, whether ultimately that expert can be allowed to give opinions at trial. That's part of a civil dis discovery phase as well. Expert testimony, expert discovery can take months, um, it can take years. Uh, it can be very expensive for the parties because if you have to retain a doctor, if you have to retain a CPA, if you have to retain an accident reconstructionist, if you have to retain a life care expert, all of those are types of experts that come up depending on your case, depending on what, you, what claims are being made, whether they're, in court, whether they're in tort or whether they are in contract claims. But all that requires the retention of experts on behalf of your client tendering those experts for depositions, the preparation of expert reports, meeting the procedural requirements under the rules of civil procedure in Alabama, under the rules of evidence in the state of Alabama, if you're in state court or on the flip side, if you happen to be in federal court, again, meeting the rules of federal procedure when it comes to the tendering of expert testimony, uh, expert opinions, and as well as the rules of federal evidence, and then you get into case law that applies to the application and um, reliability and relevancy and admission of expert testimony and trial. These are all complicated legal issues that can arise in a civil case, depending on how complex your case is, and that takes time and it takes money, and um, it, it requires a lawyer who, who is constantly trying to move that process for you and to make sure they're dotting their I's and crossing their T's, especially in the, in the realm of expert dis discovery and expert testimony under Rule 702 of the Rules of Civil, Pro Civil Procedure in Alabama and the, um, not, I'm sorry, the Rules of Evidence in Alabama as well as Rule 702 under the Federal Rules of Evidence. You want a lawyer that's experienced and knows how to lay the foundation to, to um, make sure that person's expert is qualified and on the flip side, to try to attack, not attack, but to try to lay um, doubt as to the qualifications on the opposing side as chosen for their expert. That's, that's legal maneuvering and strategy within the facts that are unique to each set of cases. So those, that's generally uh, a long topic, a long way to say, finding out information. It can go in a number of different ways in the civil world. I've dealt and had a lot of experience in all of those matters that I just mentioned. Um, and then I'll add one other, one other aspect of this discovery process, and that is discovery disputes. Um, you, um, you may get subpoenas for documents or for um, in, disinterested parties who may have information that's relevant to the civil, civil dispute that you're in. Those parties, those non-parties, what we call non-parties, may raise objections to producing information to you. When that happens, um, objections are filed. Courts will have hearings sometimes to determine those objections. The same type of situation may occur with respect to the parties themselves. They may ask, one side may ask the other for documents. The other side may object. The lawyers try in good faith to resolve it, but they can't get past it, and that's where the judge has to 
again, get involved in the discovery phase of the case and hear a, a motion to compel or other type of motion related to a dispute related to discovery. So that is, um, that is how the civil world functions a lot. Um, if you get into a civil case where there aren't a lot of discovery disputes and you're able to get the information that you need, that's good for you and good for the client and it means you're ready to get the case that much closer to get it ready to be tried. But that's the civil world that, that I've seen and I've done for the past almost 20 years when it comes to discovery. Okay, so I guess we can move on to the next type of law. So do we want to do criminal next? I'll talk a little bit about the criminal um, discovery process. Originally, when a, when a person is charged with a crime, they have a court appearance, and that first court appearance is generally either a bond hearing or their arraignment. And once they come in for their arraignment, arraignment is where you plead not guilty. Um, you're given a copy of the actual complaint or a copy of the indictment or whatever it is that you're, the charging instrument that they have, the state has against you or the city has against you in any of these cases. And in those situations, that's where everything starts, is, is the charging instrument. That's kind of like the roadmap of where we begin. And then we start asking questions about who saw what and when it was seen and what type of uh, investigation has the uh, prosecution done. And you're entitled to all of that information. You're entitled to witness statements, written statements. You're entitled to recordings, if they were audio recorded or video recorded. You're entitled to dash cam video. You're entitled to body cam video. All of those things. You can get video from an ATM machine. You can get video from a gas station or a, a store. You can get video from a witness that, that had a cell phone and took a video. You can get that information. You can, you can be able to see all of that. We're entitled to all those things. And sometimes we have to ask for it, and then we have to file motions for it. We're entitled to medical records and work records. Anything that has to do with a defense strategy, we can then assert different types of motions to be able to obtain that information. We can have actual hearings on specific evidentiary issues or suppression issues of how something was found or where it was found or what what rights of the individual were violated at the time to be able to obtain information and should it be suppressed. We can have all of those. Those are all part of the discovery process. Depositions are very rarely used in criminal cases. However, I have been involved in cases in which a deposition was used. There's very limited circumstances for that. Some of the most complicated cases we have are capital murder cases and murder cases. You've got volumes of medical records, volumes of information, volumes of statements and videos, and sometimes you have a lot of co-defendants, people who are multiple people who are charged with the same set of crimes or similar crimes within the same set of facts. And so you get involved, when you start having more people involved and you start having more defendants and you, have, and you have more complex litigation issues within the criminal world, it becomes very, very involved. And it could take years to sort through some of, some of these things. That's why we have individuals that are charged with capital murder cases that have been in jail for a period of time and the case isn't coming it may take three or four years for the case to actually go to trial. Part of that has to do with the scheduling of the courts and the number of attorneys that are actually qualified to handle those types of cases. But here at the Hernandez and Dorga firm, we have two attorneys that are qualified to handle uh, capital murder cases. And um, we have two attorneys that are, are qualified to handle all other types of criminal cases as well. We also have attorneys that work both crossover with civil 
and criminal in misdemeanor cases. And there's discovery that's involved in each of those cases as well. Some of it bleeds over between civil and criminal. And so there's a lot of different aspects of, of, the, uh, of the discovery process that may pertain to both, both areas, both civil and criminal, depending on the nature of the facts and the case that you're actually involved in. Okay. Um, what about, I know Sarah mentioned non-party and people who are, don't have an independent interest in the suit having discovery provided by them to whoever is subpoenaing that information. Is that some, some of the same thing that happens in criminal court? Yes, we can, we can issue subpoenas uh, for different individuals that aren't actually parties. They're considered witnesses in some form or fashion. We can obtain that information. And we can also obtain information related to um, providers, service providers. One of the other things that we do with criminal cases is we've done here at the firm mock juries. So we bring in outside third parties who are third, not parties, but outside individuals to prepare us for trial to kind of ask questions that maybe we haven't thought of about the facts of the case and give us ideas of where our defense strategy might be missing or where the state's strategy or what we think the state strategy is, um, where it might fail. And so we have general lay people that aren't lawyers, that aren't judges, that aren't um, police officers necessarily, but people that are, are, are interested in kind of like being a part of a reality TV kind or of thing. Or in a way, they kind of represent what the what a jury may think. Right, and, the general, and what the general public may want to know. And that's important for us to look at that aspect as well. And that, although it's not a traditional discovery tool, it is a tool that we can use and have used in the past to be able to prepare our clients for trial. Okay. Megan, did you have something to add? Uh, sure. So in... In a lot of our criminal cases, we will have an investigator that goes out and talks to a lot of the parties um, that were involved with the case. And a lot of times, speaking with one of the alleged victims or just somebody who was around can lead down a trail to somebody else. Um, that can also lead to maybe a store that the defendant went, where the defendant was, and we can subpoena that video. Um, and and. So having an investigator is very a very useful tool that we have because they are able to find out a lot of things. Um, also, people are um, a lot of times not willing to talk to attorneys, and so they may not speak with us, but we send out our very friendly investigator, and they open up. Um, another, unfortunately, somewhat too easy discovery tool that we have is social media. Um, uh, it's everybody is on social media today and uh, unfortunately sometimes it's our clients who is making the other side's job really easy by posting um, different live videos or pictures of them doing something either unethical or illegal uh, for one the live videos uh, we've had clients who will post a live video of them doing something illegal, smoking weed, something like that. Uh, weed is legal in a lot of other states. Weed is still illegal in Alabama. So that is something that can be used against you. Um, also in domestic cases, it can be used against you. And it's so easy for the attorney on the other side to just search your name and now they just have a slew of very easy evidence. 
So is social media, is it difficult to use in court? I know it's easy to access, but is it just as easy to use in a criminal case, at a jury, or at a, let's say, a preliminary hearing or a YO hearing? Um, it, it depends. Um, I wouldn't say it's easy to use, but it is possible. It really just depends on if your attorney knows how, how to keep it, how to get it in and how to keep it out. So you do need to make sure that that is a discussion you have with your attorney and that you can make sure that if you want it in, it comes in, and if you want it out, you can keep it out. The live videos on Facebook are very difficult to keep out, and that's why I, I brought up live specifically earlier um, because we do have reasons, ability to keep it out, and the, the live uh, does not have that ability sometimes. And so... I would encourage all of my clients to not use live on Facebook, especially my criminal clients, please. Grady, did you have something to comment specifically about social media in your area of practice? Well, it's always a good uh, thing not to so not to put on social media uh, excessive drinking, use of illegal drugs. Uh, going out with members of the opposite sex whom you're not married to, and information like that, which will definitely come back to haunt you in a domestic relations case. So I'm going to ask the same question to you. That information is, again, easy to access, but is it easy to use in uh, domestic-type cases? It's very easy to use in domestic-type cases. Remember, it's a bench trial. Judges have broad discretion on what they will allow in that's material relevant to a case, and uh, judges normally will allow that, that type of information in if you can set a basis for it to be admitted into in divorce cases or any kind of domestic relations case. Discovery is important, but it's more narrowly focused as opposed to a product liability case. Uh, we're focused on what's happened during the marriage of two individuals in a divorce case, so we are interested in finding out all the assets that a couple has acquired during the marriage or may have acquired prior to the marriage that may be subject to division during the marriage. The debts need to be identified, uh, each and every reason why one party should be awarded custody as opposed to the other party. You've got spousal issues such as alimony, so the amount of income that parties make and where that money and funds are located is very important. So it's uh, Discovery is a, a tool that's used to find that information out and to gather that information because if you don't gather all the assets then the court can't make a proper division. And the whole goal in a divorce case is to separate the parties as best you can. The uh, other issues that we have in discovery is use of expert witnesses. And there are three primary expert witnesses that are used in divorce cases. One, it would be appraisers. Uh, if there's real estate involved in a divorce. A second would be any psychiatrist, psychologist. Uh, they're used normally in a custody situation and visitation issues concerning children. And then you've got CPAs, which there's businesses involved that do business valuations. CPAs will also do uh, valuations on retirement funds because most families and marriages, the primary assets that individuals acquired during the marriage is either real estate in the marital home place or in their retirement. 
and those are huge amounts of money sometimes. And so you have to have the information in order for the court to make a proper uh, division of that uh, asset. And so that's what discovery is in, in family law. And the social media, I can't tell you how many times it has been used in domestic relations. You think something simple as drinking while your baby's sitting in the back of the car and picture of you out doing it doesn't come back to haunt you. Many people have lost custody because of that. So it's very important to uh, be cognizant of what you're posting on social media. And once it's there, you don't know who's gotten it and it will come back. One of the other things is um, we have a lot of clients that are involved in different types of litigation, uh, same-sex couples, um, whether it's two men or, or two women. And we also have transgender couples that are involved in litigation. And it could, a lot of the things that people post on social media um, in, in an attempt to hurt one or other person, that can come back to haunt you as well, specifically if you're saying certain things about certain uh, types of people and then you're, you turn right around and now you're arguing something slightly different in court. Uh, that will certainly be something that's brought back up and, um, and you'll hear it again. Right. Okay, so does anybody else have anything to add about um, social media and how it affects their individual areas practice law? I do have one other thing about social media. We have a new area of law that's developing, and that is individuals who are forming families uh, who are not married. Um, it's not really brand new because it's been happening for years, uh, children born out of wedlock. However, with the, with the changes in the marriage laws and, and things like that, more people are creating households and families, and then there's a question of who has what rights to what children and when. And, so you're going to see some of that posted on social media and there's going to be questions and this rally or that rally may show up and individuals showing up in those particular scenarios. Sometimes they like to play, play their case out in social media and they like to get polls from other individuals in their community and they want to get this opinion or that opinion of how they think, uh, how the community thinks their spouse is, is behaving is proper or improper. And, and I strongly discourage uh, trying your case in, in the public venue when it's a private matter. And remember, if you're engaged in um, private, intimate relationship with someone, that is not something that should be videoed and then plastered all over social media uh, for someone else to view. We've seen it come back in criminal cases, we've seen it come up in, in domestic cases, and the last thing that you want is a group of strangers watching your video of you engaged in some conduct that if you wouldn't show it to your mother, you shouldn't show it to the world. <laughs> I think that's very true in, in everybody's aspect. So let's move on a little bit to maybe the more time constraints involved with discovery in different areas. So I know that discovery is a very long process in, in civil, let alone criminal, especially if it's a capital murder charge or a murder charge, but there are certain deadlines, timelines associated with discovery. How can that affect, you know, a client's case moving forward or if there's any kinds of disputes in discovery, how that can either put it on the fast track or prolong a case, those types of things. In the civil world, you have 
two different types of procedure that are going to apply to deadlines. If a complaint is filed in state court, which is the Alabama state court system, either a circuit court or a district court, and the party who is filing the complaint serves discovery, written discovery with the complaint. In the rules of civil procedure, in both of those types of courts, the time to answer that complaint is 30 days. The time to answer the discovery that has served with the complaint is 45 days. Those rule, and those rules are found in the rules of civil procedure that, that govern lawyers who do civil cases. They, they have, you have to have the procedure written down somewhere so, no, so we know what to do as civil lawyers. Typically, a lot of times, those rules um, will get, or those deadlines will get extended either by agreement or by order of the court if a party files and says, hey, I just I need some additional time to respond. And if the discovery is not filed with, the, with the, the, the complaint in state court and it's filed after the parties have appeared and answers have been filed or motions have been filed and they related to the dismissal or non-dismissal of the claim and the case is still going forward, then the typical time to respond to written discovery requests is 30 days. Again, a lot of times those deadlines will be extended by agreement because lawyers um, you know, sometimes need additional time. For whatever reason, they can't meet with their client. Their client's um, not available when the discovery is due. The lawyer may be in trial and can't meet with the client until they get out of trial in another case. So deadlines in, in, in the civil world are set by rules. In state court, um, a lot of times they will be extended by agreement or by motion. If, if, a, if you've reached out to the other side, the other side says, no, I can't agree. You go to the court and say, I, I need additional time for these reasons. Usually the civil judges are going to give you the benefit of the doubt and going to give you the additional time that you're needing. In the federal um, system, the filing of discovery is not allowed with the complaint. You are allowed to do civil discovery after a certain period of time has elapsed in the federal system, but a party is under a different set of discovery rules there and as it relates to what they call initial disclosures in the civil world in federal court. If you have relevant information that pertains to the claims that you make or the defenses that you raise, once you go through the procedure where the judge um, says, you know, here's our scheduling order, here's where we're going to move the case along, et cetera, et cetera and the discovery phase actually officially begins in the federal civil case, um, you, you don't wait for a discovery request to come to you. You actually have a duty to produce information in your initial disclosures. And as information evolves in the case and you, come and you become aware of additional information that may support your claim or may support a defense, you're obligated to turn that over without the other side asking for it. Those types of um, procedures don't apply in the state courts. You have discovery tools like requests for production, requests for documents, requests for interrogatories. You have those same type rules in the federal system, but you have the additional imposition of and duty to provide information, initial disclosures, and continue to supplement your initial disclosures, regardless if the other side never even asks you for any information. So um, initial disclosures are timely, they're due. It, depending on when the discovery phase actually starts for you in federal court, that will be usually determined by what your scheduling order says. In the civil world, we know it as a Rule 16b scheduling order, but those deadlines generally um, are going to be you know, strictly enforced 
sometimes more so by the federal courts than they are the state courts. All of that said, in dealing with other tools of discovery when it comes to depositions, in the federal court system, usually you're going to have a stricter scheduling order that's going to keep you on a deadline of doing what we call written discovery and then moving to deposition discovery. You may have a three-month time period to get depositions scheduled. You may have a six-month time period to get depositions scheduled. You may not have those same type deadlines imposed on you by the state court because you don't have a, a similar type scheduling order that order that has been entered with regard to your case or if you're in state court and you do have a scheduling order in place that you have worked with the other side and coming up with reasonable deadlines you also may have similar deadlines imposed on you to get those um, written uh, written discovery done as well as deposition discovery of the parties and non-witnesses in both courts if a rule if a 16 scheduling order has in fact been issued there all, almost always is going to be a time for expert discovery again in a civil case the plaintiff usually will be required to tender their experts and their experts reports first if they're in federal court sometimes those um, requirements of reports are a little bit more stringent than what you see in state court but usually in a typical case the plaintiff's experts will tender their opinions first There'll be a deadline to depose those experts if the other side chooses to do so, and then the defendants will have a chance to tender their experts in response to the, the experts made and the opinions offered by plaintiffs on, on their behalf. And in some instances, you'll even have a further phase of discovery where the plaintiff will be allowed to tender a rebuttal expert or rebuttal expert opinions after the defendant's expert has provided his or her opinions in the form of a written report and or in giving a deposition. So all of those are deadlines. A lot of them can be determined through agreement by the parties or through the imposition of a scheduling order. And if you have a scheduling order in a civil case, hopefully you've worked with opposing counsel to, for both of you to come up with reasonable deadlines, given the nature of the case, given the, the complexity of the case, given the complexity of the, par complexity of the parties, if they're located in town, if they're located out of town, you as a civil seasoned lawyer are going to know and get a feel for how long is it going to take to get this case ready for trial and if you've got a complicated uh, civil matter you as a, as, a, as a civil lawyer are going to do the best you can on the front end and trying to schedule and manage those deadlines so that you're able to you know move the case along but also give you and your client adequate time to be prepared and be ready for the different um, aspects of the case and as the discovery unwinds. Okay, so what about in criminal matters? So in criminal, we have scheduling orders, and those orders will lay out when discovery is due. So um, it, it's different in for the different courts. But, for example, in district court, we if you're charged with a misdemeanor, we will request the discovery, and the state must provide that discovery and, but then in circuit court, when you're charged with a felony, um, this, a lot of times, at least in Mobile, the prosecutor almost automatically sends over the discovery to us after the arraignment. And we then have time crunches on when, when all of the discovery 
must be provided because discovery is fluid and new evidence comes about um, while the case is still pending. But the court will order when certain things are due to the other side. Okay. So, Christine, do you have anything else to add on a criminal side of how discovery kind of moves? No, the only other, the only other um, thing that might take a minute would be if we have to do psychological evaluations, that's additional discovery, but uh, that is really fact-specific to the individual cases. Okay, so Grady, what about you in, in your area of domestic? Any t timeline constraints or anything to talk about specifically in discovery for domestic cases? Yeah, there's there are skit. There really aren't scheduling orders that the juvenile court does a scheduling order as when um, discovery needs to be completed. The rules of civil procedure basically uh, about, uh, pertains to discovery in uh, domestic relations courts. Uh, I'm going to say that the domestic relations judges are a little bit more lax in the discovery uh, requirements and the time frames. Uh, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't follow the rules of civil procedure, they're just, uh, they're more, I guess they're not as well enforced as you would find in criminal cases and other types of civil cases. Uh, the domestic relations judges tend to allow uh, information to be discovered that can lead uh, to both material and irrelevant information. Uh, and they just, uh, they're more open to what you can or cannot ask for in discovery. So, but it's still important to meet the deadlines and to uh, send your uh, request for uh, discovery, file your motions for compelled, file your motions for sanctions in a timely manner. Uh, it's just not uh, as uh, drop dead time frames in domestic relations as it is in other courts. Okay, so what about, we've talked about civil and in federal court as well as state court. We've talked about criminal. We've talked about domestic. What about probate court? Does probate court have any kind of discovery? Uh, yeah, well, probate court's subject to the same rules of procedure. Uh, yes. Uh, so, and our judge here in Mobile tends to be uh, more uh, particular in making sure that discovery is done in a timely manner. So you really need to abide by what the rules of civil procedure allows. Of course, Judge Davis will also put out a scheduling order after a meeting with the parties on the status, and he will actually put into an order the time frames that both parties have to complete certain tasks, including discovery. So yes, I would say that he's more particular in dealing with uh, discovery matters and putting out schedule more. Now, everyone mentioned some hard deadlines, you know, and if those deadlines aren't kind of met in a certain time period, there's other motions that help speed things along. For example, Grady, you mentioned a motion to compel and a motion for sanctions, those kinds of things to speed things along. Now, that's not to say that those types of things are necessarily going to guarantee that your case moves quickly. Am I right? That's correct. Those, that, those motions, again, it's up to a judge to enforce those motions once they enter an order based upon those motions. Again, hopefully, at trial, if the 
opposing side does not provide the information that they've been compelled and sanctioned in some cases, then the judge should not allow it to be admissible at trial. I can't always guarantee that because they have wide discretion in uh, divorce cases and and family law cases, the judge does, and in enforcing his own orders. And sometimes they uh, enforce them and sometimes they don't. Okay. I also want to talk about in the, on the civil side in both federal and state court when it comes to motions to compel and a possible motion for sanctions. Civil lawyers know Rule 37 and what it requires. That's the rule of civil procedure that pertains to the filing of a motion to compel and getting further relief from the court. The way, the way that these typical discovery disputes arise is that a party will ask the other side for information. The other side may object. They raise certain objections that, um, for instance, a, a privilege may apply. The, the, the other side may say, you're not entitled to my communications with my lawyer and I, and therefore I'm gonna raise the attorney-client privilege. That's just an example. When a discovery dispute happens, the lawyers in state court are required to conference in good faith and see if they can resolve the matter. Usually this will happen in the form of a letter from the other lawyer saying, you know, you've raised these objections, will you consider a compromise? What about trying to narrow the discovery request if, if one of the objections are it's too broad or it asks for too much information for too much period of time, it's going to cost us too much to assemble the information. The lawyers are under a duty to, in good faith, try to resolve that dispute or objection prior to any motion to compel being filed. In federal court, there actually are stricter guidelines that are imposed on lawyers in a civil dispute when there is a discovery dispute, and it's imposed by many of the, the magistrates that we have here in the Southern District of Alabama, as well as elsewhere across the country. They are actually instituting new proceedings where they even have a pre-motion to compel conference, informal conference with the magistrate judge. Um, either he or she has it with the lawyers on both sides where the lawyers have to come to the magistrate. They have to say, here judge, this is what the issue is. And the magistrate may give them a preview of what he or she may ultimately decide if a motion to compel gets filed. Rule 37 in federal court tends to be way more strict on counsel's duty to confer in good faith before a motion to compel is filed than the state court judges typically impose on lawyers in state court. And so if you've got lawyers who are not familiar with those procedures in federal court and don't do what they're required to do, you may lose a strategic advantage really quickly and not get the information that you're looking for. So keep in mind on a Rule 37 motion to compel in state and federal court, you've got a duty to try to resolve that before you get the court involved. Once a court is involved and a court rules on a motion to compel, whether you've gone through the state court procedure or the federal court procedure, and there is an actual order. Grady mentioned what a motion for sanctions is related to, and it's exactly that. If you get a court order and the party doesn't still doesn't give you the information, or the non-party, somebody that's gotten a subpoena says, I'm still not going to comply with this order, the next step is to file a motion for sanctions. And that's when you're asking the court to uh, impose some sort of uh, penalty against the party or non-party that's refusing to comply with the order. Um, that can 
anywhere the wide range can result from a award of attorney's fees to a default judgment against the party if, if the, it's the defendant who's refusing to comply with the order it can result in a dismissal of the complaint if the plaintiff is the one who's refusing to dismiss or refusing to comply with the order all of those are rule 37 sanctions that are available under federal and state court and again if you've got a court order you need to comply if you've got a discovery request that requires you to answer and answer truthfully, you need to do that and avoid these types of disputes because what all these disputes do is cost you money and they cost you time. And ultimately, if you're representing a small individual against a big company that has tremendous resources and can afford multiple lawyers on multiple fronts, you can get bogged down in these type of disputes that will last for years because it becomes a matter of we're just going to try to outlast you. Um, so. You want a lawyer that knows how to handle that and be efficient and be proactive when it comes to trying to avoid discovery disputes on the front end. Okay. So I know in criminal litigation, it's a little bit different. You don't necessarily have a motion to compel, a motion for sanctions. So there, there is one tool that we have as a motion to eliminate. If we request, at least in the criminal arena, if we request the state to provide us with certain information and they do not provide that to us, we can then file a motion in limine and what that is is we are asking the court that if they somewhat magically come up with this information that they are not able to use it in trial. So um, a, a drug results for example, so if, we, if they charge our client with uh, possession of a controlled substance and they do not deliver to us the results from the lab showing that it was in fact a, uh, an illegal controlled substance, um, then we can file a motion in limine. We request the, that the court not allow them to provide those results during trial, and, um, and we hope that they do that. And then in mid-trial, while they are trying to prove that our client was in possession of a drug, they are not able to prove that it was a drug because they did not do their due diligence in handing over the evidence earlier in the process. Okay, so um, does anybody have anything else to add as far as what kind of discovery tools there are to uh, prevent or include certain types of discovery elements into court and either in a jury trial, a bench trial, or whatever? Um, that could help speed along or prolong the process. I will add this for thought in the civil world, just because you're ultimately going to get some information in discovery, whatever, whatever it is you're asking for, ultimately that does not mean that the evidence is admissible in a trial setting. When a party goes to trial in a civil case, the lawyers from a lot of times have worked for years on getting that discovery phase if it's a very complex dispute and it's their task to only only get it down to where you need only the evidence that's a, that's a, that's relevant to proving your claims or proving your defenses so you may you may engage in a significant expense related to very broad discovery on behalf of your client and because of the judge has said you've got to turn it over or whatever. But at trial, very minimal amounts of that discovery may actually ever see the light of day or any of it, none of it could see the light of day. So just because you, know, you may ultimately have to produce it in discovery doesn't mean that it's gonna be relevant or admissible at trial. And admissibility 
is a separate, whole separate issue from the broad range of discovery. Discovery in, in state court and federal court tends to be pretty broad uh, with reasonable limitations, but getting discovery documents or discovery testimony admitted into evidence is a whole different, that's a whole different level. And as a trial lawyer and a litigator, um, it's your job to know how to, how to object and how to try to keep that type of information out um, when, it, when it's not relevant in trial settings. So keep that in mind, especially for those of you who are going to be engaged in uh, complex, long disputes, civil disputes that can last for several years. And the same holds true in criminal. We have uh, significant motion practice that we can, can use with regard to evidentiary issues and getting pretrial orders related to those specific evidentiary issues. And just because the judge rules in one way uh, in a pretrial motion does not mean that uh, in trial that you simply just don't object. Your trial lawyer needs to continue to object to preserve that issue for purposes of appeal. Okay. And in domestic, it is very important whenever you receive those discovery requests from the other side, it is very important that you get those doc documents to your attorney as soon as possible because what we see a lot of times is the client will wait until last minute to provide that discovery and in a lot of divorce and custody cases there there's a lot um, there's documents from teachers that you may want to introduce there's um, paychecks where you want to show that there's been an increase or decrease in income or where you just want to show what the income is and discovery it, it continues on. So if you pro provide discovery in May of 19 and your divorce is to be held in September of 2020, you're not excused from giving everything over that was requested from May until September of 2020. You must still continue to hand over that discovery. So if you change jobs, you have to, you have to provide that. And if you do not, once you get to your trial, you are looking at potentially not being able to use that evidence. It's often that we have clients who will come to court on the day of trial with photos that we have never seen and they're expecting us to be able to use that in trial. And there's a very high likelihood that we're not going to be able to because the other side has not seen them and they requested them. And so as a client, you've got to keep that in mind. Is this something that I'm going to want to use in trial? Because if so, you absolutely have to give it to us and you have to give us time to go through it and, you, and for us to decide whether or not we want to produce this, if we have to produce this. And if we do have to produce it, you have to give us time to do so and you have to give the other side time to do whatever it is that they need to do with it. Okay, does anybody else have anything to add? about constantly providing information, making sure that you're as completely transparent as possible with your attorney in every step, especially in discovery. Even though it takes as long as it does in most cases, we still want to be able to provide things in a timely manner, correct? That's right. Yeah, and I will add, in a, in a, in a civil lawsuit, if documents are requested of you and you take steps to get rid of the documents, and so that nobody ever sees the light of day, um, you've just really created a whole nother level of problems for yourself. <laughs> you don't want to be accused of spoilation of evidence. You don't want to be accused of, of purposely destroying possibly relevant evidence. So 
if the facts are bad and you're in a civil suit and the documents are bad, for whatever reason, they support what the other side is saying, don't get rid of it. Let your lawyer know. Um, the lawyer needs to know the bad. The lawyer needs to know if the facts are not favorable for you because that's going to affect how the lawyer is going to be able to do the best he or she can in defending the claims or pursuing the claims for you. That, that I have been in civil lawsuits where documents have been requested and the other side either said that the documents were destroyed or they no longer existed or it turns out they did exist and they tried to get rid of the documents but in the digital age that we live in you don't ever really truly get rid of anything digitally and there are ways to find that out and if that happens uh, the lawsuit can take a, a favorable term for you if you're the party seeking the information and the value of the case can go up if a party destroys or gets rid of evidence or fails to preserve on the other side and on the other side if you're the party that's done that um, again the value of the case for you from a liability standpoint can go up significantly because not ha not related to what the actual dispute is about whether it's a car wreck or a discovery a products liability or a contract dispute but those discovery type actions with spoilation of evidence and the destruction or failure to preserve become what the whole case is about and and nobody really um, knows whether the underlying claims can be proved anymore because it's an affront to justice and the justice system itself when a party purposely or fails um, on all levels to obtain and preserve or get rid of, in some cases, highly relevant information. So that is a very important thing to keep in mind, especially if you're a party who has been sued, is to look at uh, ways to preserve electronic information, existing documents as they exist at the time that you are, have been sued or have reasonable anticipation that you are going to be sued. Um, those are big, big pitfalls that can happen pretty quickly and so make sure you know um, and have a lawyer to help you navigate those very, very sensitive issues in a timely matter. Okay. Does anybody have anything else to add to this topic of discovery? No? Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of In the Trenches with the Hernandez and Dorger Law Firm, the Equalizing Justice Team. Stay tuned because we will be posting bi-weekly. No representation is made that legal services performed are greater than the quality of legal services of others. 